All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for another day just to be alive, to breathe your air, to live the life you called us to live. Help us to concentrate right now on your word. Help us to be humble and hear what your spirit is saying so that we can bring you glory in this life while we have time. Most of all, Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to earth to once for all take care of our salvation so that those who trust in him will never perish but have eternal life. Father, please bless this message. Have your Spirit guide us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 90. On Sunday... The Spirit had us revisit some principles, uh, not only from the last week, but really from the last month. He's helping us synthesize certain things, apparently. And if we remain humble in the face of repetition, he'll show us more and more things. And it's not always to be humble when things are being repeated to you, right? Let's admit it. And you say, I've already heard this before. I've already heard this before. And that little bit of arrogance creeping in is going to hinder what the Spirit's trying to do with synthesizing everything. So, again, be ready and take it in with humility and see what He's going to show us because it's always more and more He's trying to combine in our souls. Personally, I'm thankful because He is slowly revealing to me the big picture more and more. Uh, Some of it I can put into words. Some of it I I really can't if you ask me. And obviously that's okay, but it's nice to see what he's doing and that he is adding to the big picture. You know, like to me, it's almost like he's filling in the picture with more colors or with more puzzle pieces. And he's just slowly doing that to to help us see a lot better. So by his grace, God will continue to do that for us. And I hope he's doing that all for you too, as you uh, humbly submit to the word. So we saw a theme from last week regarding trusting in the process, and in particular, trusting in the supernatural God of the universe. For example, when it comes to God's sovereignty versus your free will. In many ways, it's actually better that we don't understand it fully because it demands faith. It's actually a blessing. Otherwise, we, somebody, some smart guy somewhere would think he has God figured out eventually. And that is literally impossible because of things like this on the board. And thank God for that so that we all stay humble and realize how unfathomable his wisdom is, truly. So we know that without faith, it's impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6. So thank God for the things that cause us to have faith, that cause the need for faith. What value is faith if it's untested? It's like having money without being able to spend it. What value is faith if it's not tested? Faith shows its value when tested, and only when tested, because that's when shining gold comes out of the furnace. And without the furnace, there's no no beauty on the other side to be revealed to the world. And that's why our faith must be tested. It might be tested in things that we don't understand, but we trust in anyway. It might be tested in trials we go through in life. All kinds of tests, obviously. 
but faith must be tested for it to be worth anything. And we'll get to that a little bit later, too. But it's using God's gift of faith, which was freely given to us, that pleases Him. It's using that faith that He gave us. And that brings Him all the glory because He gave it, gave it to us in the first place, right? But that's what really pleases Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Back to that theme that we've been on for a while now. As we trust in the process and accept that we won't understand everything, we boldly cling to promises like we've seen in Romans 8.28 on the board. And this really seals the deal for us, walking by faith. You know, this is a good um, example, maybe, of walking by faith. Because we know that God causes all things to work together for those for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So we can cling to that promise any time we have doubts, questions, um, lack of understanding that might bother us even. Go back to this, which really spurs on the faith of a child, doesn't it? All we have to worry about is loving God and following Him. And that's our calling as believers. God does everything else by grace, including working out evil for good in our lives, and including when we don't understand what's going on in our lives. God does it all, even when we're uncomfortable. As Pastor mentioned Sunday, this includes all kinds of practical realities in our lives, many of which we will never see with our physical eyes. The things he's working out behind the scenes for our good, immeasurable. And we won't see a lot of them until we get to heaven. But tr- you've got to trust that that's happening, that he's doing these things for us. You know, I think about, um, you know, on a, a couple of missionary trips I went on to some pretty dangerous countries. And I had, like, no problems. I had, like, no obvious threats. But I can't wait to get to heaven to see all the things that he stopped or all the angels that might have been involved in diverting people or who knows? Who knows? But he is working behind the scenes in all of our lives. And that's why, for example, he doesn't let us have anything more than we can handle. Right? Let's say there's an attack coming from the left that he knows you can't handle. Well, he might block that one with an angel or whatever, however he does it. But this one on the right, he might let get through because you need it and you're ready for it and whatever. So all the things that he's working together for good, behind the scenes, we have to have faith in because that's always happening. And it's good to picture the invisible realm. It's good to visualize what's going on around you. So this came up on Sunday, but the Spirit added a phrase from our recent time in Philippians 2 where if you remember Philippians 2, it says God is at work in you, right? And then it says to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, combine that with what we just read in Romans 8, 28. And Pastor mentioned this on Sunday. His causing all things to work together for good means that certain fruit with his divine stamp of goodness on it will be born in each of our souls as believers. And it will be for his good pleasure. 
again, His causing all things to work together for good means that certain fruit with His divine stamp of goodness on it will be born in each of our souls as believers. We were reminded that all the new creature can do is good. It can't do bad. It can't do evil. It can't do otherwise because it's perfect. Just like the flesh can only produce bad fruit. That's what it does. And that's what Jesus said very plainly. Uh, Look at Matthew 7, verse 17. Matthew 7, 17. We see the good tree and the bad tree, and the good fruit and the bad fruit. And these are kind of like inevitable results. A good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. It's just how it is, how God designed it. Matthew seven seventeen. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As we've seen, we may not understand every meaning of even analogies like this in front of us, but we do have dogmatic theology, plainly stated theology, to cling to as our foundation, even when we don't understand fully analogies like this. So we reviewed a few principles on Sunday from the beginning of the month, starting with this, determining truth. Whatever theology is clearly stated in the scriptures, is the truth about a matter. Experiences can only complement or be interpreted by the correct theology. It can't be the other way around. And this goes for parables too. Parables can only complement or be interpreted in line with correct, plainly stated theology. It's not an issue of fully understanding analogies and parables. It's an issue of having the faith of a child even when you don't understand everything. Because what does a child do? He trusts his dad. Even when his dad tells him to do something he doesn't understand, he says, okay, right? I'll do it, even though I don't really get it, but I trust you. Why? What? You wouldn't do anything to hurt me. And so it's the same with reading parables and even reading the Word of God when you don't understand everything you're reading. It's just keeping that faith for a child being willing to say, okay, I'm fine with that message, even on on a basic level, and go with that. So regarding accepting parables, a child would simply believe and get out of the way, allowing the Spirit to work in them with it. I mean, picture a little child, you know, five, six years old, who's told to do something, Maybe doesn't stand up and says, okay, and then what do they do? They run off and play. Right? They run off in freedom. They're not in bondage to what they were just told or don't understand yet. They're like, Meh, all right. And then they're in their own world again. What is that? That's faith. Like God wants us to have that freedom to run off and play in the devil's world. Not the wrong way, you know what I mean? Run off and play. Be free. Relax. Who cares about the attacks coming upon you? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. 
So the faith of a child keeps coming back. And it can be applied when reading things like parables. We've been learning a lot about fruit bearing lately, which if you think about it, all started years ago. And I don't think we knew we were going to get this in depth with it. But do you remember 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, the gold coming out of the furnace, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On that day, the proof of your faith will be, hopefully, to his praise and glory and honor when we see him in heaven. So really, that's talking about your fruit, the proof of your faith. What is the result of having faith under trials? I was listening to a song on the way in, and it was talking about going through testing and how there never seemed an end to the testing. And there's, you see no end at the, you know, at the end of the road. There's no light, right? But the song said, I won't compromise. I won't compromise. And isn't that beautiful? When you can find a man or a woman who's willing to stick up for the truth or stick up for um, what's right, even when everything's going against them, and, they, and there's an easy way out right here. Just come this way. It takes a little bit of cheating, a little bit of lying, uh, a little bit of compromise. But isn't it awesome, isn't it beautiful when you see a person who literally says, no, I'm not compromising. I don't care how bad it gets. God, this is right, and that's it. How much glory does that bring to God in front of the angels? How much of that is going to be the proof of the faith? that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's those little things, which are big things. So we've been on fruit bearing and what God sees in it and what it really means. Recently, we've seen this principle. True believers will produce fruit because God says so. And if they don't for a time, he will rectify it. Because he says he will. And if they never come back, they were never his child in the first place. Because they're what scripture calls apostates. That's all backed by quite a bit of scripture we've seen in the last month or so. There are many pretenders, unfortunately, even in the churches. And one evidence of this is that they leave eventually and never come back to God. There are all kinds of fruit in people's lives, which in the end reveals what was really going on in their hearts. So, for our recent lessons on fruit, we've recently, anyway, been in John 15, and I'm not going to make you turn there, but just look on the board, verses 1 and 2. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. And we saw this past week three possible interpretations of this parable, none of which would disagree with plainly stated theology. And the point that came out to me is we don't need to be 
dogmatically conclusive on the meaning of parables. Um, there are many Bible scholars, I mean many men that are brilliant, if you will, who have studied the Bible for 50 years, as Pastor mentioned, that all disagree on meanings of parables. So I think the important thing is, whatever meaning you are convicted of, make sure it matches up with plainly stated theology. Right? It can't go against what is clearly stated in the Word of God. For example, eternal security for those that truly believe. So we talked about parable branches. And this is an example. Just because Scripture calls out a branch, it doesn't always refer strictly to believers necessarily. Rather, it establishes a certain relationship to the vine or the tree or the root. And this is under one interpretation of John 15.2. If it's referring to believers then we know believers cannot lose their gift of salvation because of the numerous passages that plainly state we are secure in his hands and he's faithful. If we see a parable talking about a branch that appears to be talking about a loss of eternal life, then we must conclude the people in view were apostates to begin with, not true believers those that were just playing the part for one reason or another. So, again, the important thing is, whichever meaning you are convicted of, it has to be in agreement with plainly stated theology. Pastor then shared with us some wisdom he's learned over the years regarding parables, and this is where the value of having a full-time pastor comes in, who, if he studies for years and years and is full-time in the Scriptures, he develops certain wisdoms over time that, you know, frankly, we don't have the time to discover a lot of these things. But over time, there's so much to be learned, and, and a humble man will keep learning these different things. So that's one reason that God has given us that spiritual gift of pastor for our edification. So this is what Pastor Collins said on parables on Sunday. Man has a tendency to impose his own restrictions on the parables in the Bible. Parables are predominantly meant to drive a single point or two home. They are not meant to be plucked apart and forced to shed light on things outside of their primary scope of revelation. And Pastor used Romans 11 as an example of that, that there's a main point to be expressed, and maybe we shouldn't be reading into it any further. If you remember in Romans 11, it's talking about the Jewish people as a whole, not, not corner cases, not individuals, but the Jews as a whole, the nation of Israel being cut off for a time due to their national unbelief. So you've got to keep that in context. And the basic principle in Romans 11 was that a branch can't survive apart from its trunk or its root. That's the clear message in that passage. We can't read into parables more than what's there, or we'll be speculating, and that is not a good thing. We have to be very careful, and I've seen it in the Bible studies at times, honestly, where people speculate, reading something into a passage that's not even there. 
It's not even addressed. And we have a tendency, I think, in the flesh to want to read things into it for whatever reason. And while it might be fun to wonder what's going on in a passage or what's going on in a person's mind in the Bible, right, an individual character, that might be fun, but we can't make bold statements about things that aren't stated there. So we have to be careful of speculating. And so with parables. If a parable doesn't allow for certain specifics, then we can't impose them, even though we desire to draw certain conclusions. Parables aren't meant to be dissected ad nauseum. They are meant to be consumed whole, so a general rule or theme may be understood. And I really like that phrase, consumed whole. When you're given a pill by a doctor, you're not meant to chew it up, right? Most of the time he says, just swallow it and let it do its work in you. That's kind of the idea with parables. In humility, swallow it whole, ask what's the message with the faith of a child, and let God do his work in you by grace. And he will add to your overall understanding of Scripture, your big picture, so to speak. He'll add to that, somehow by the work of the Spirit in you, because you accepted the main message with the faith of a child. Pastor admitted this has been one of his greatest revelations in his own studies and one of the greatest areas of freedom for him recently. And he gave us a brief parable as an example on Sunday. Men are like pigs. And some of us chuckled because we understood what was being said, uh, at least the general statement being made about men, even though it's not about all men. And this understanding, the reason we got it very quickly, is because of context, because of the audience and where we live. We in the U.S. understand that saying, men are like pigs, because of our culture. And just think about this now. We understand that. But step back and go back 2,000 years ago and think about all the cultural truths that parables might have been directed towards back then. That we have no idea things that were going on, certain expressions maybe. And here we are overanalyzing a parable when it may have a very simple message like metal like pigs. You get it or you don't get it. You have the context, you get it. You don't have the context, you don't get it. So you try to scramble for another meaning that isn't there. So while it's true that people are always people, 2,000 years ago and now we're all sinners, culture can change how we communicate effectively. If I were in India, for example, saying men are like pigs, I have no idea the reaction or understanding that would take place. No idea whatsoever. And even though I've been there and preached. Why? Because to know the cultural realities of a people or a time, you've got to be there for years. You won't know all the nuances. I mean, they might think, you know, when you say men are like pigs, India is such a poor country. How do you know men aren't hopping in the pig pens trying to steal the peapods? Maybe that's what they think it means. You know? <laughs> I've said things before and everyone starts laughing. 
if I'm like in India, for example. I'm like, oh boy, why are they laughing? What did I just say? Because something I said meant something to them, obviously, in their culture. So context is huge, even with parables. Their meaning and even their tone were dependent on the culture and who Jesus was trying to reach. So remember that. When, before you get stressed out about a parable, remember that. Pastor's point with the men are pigs parable is that the direct message is what was intended and understood by the audience. It wasn't meant to go beyond that simple message, which means the parable did its job. And that was his point. If you spend too much time on a statement like that, you start over-examining it, you know, what's, what's the real meaning of this? What's the hidden meaning of this? And you start to speculate. And that leads to problems. Am I to look for men with snout-like noses? Is that a sign? Is that the fruit of men that act like pigs, that they develop noses like snouts? And then you can take it a step further. And then the next Bible scholar takes that and says, oh, and I'm going to add this to it, when it's not even there. Maybe that's not the point of the parable. So we have to be careful. Obviously, if a person were here who didn't understand the direct meaning of a statement like that, say a pastor from India, and he started asking all these questions like we just went into, you know, about pigs and how they act and pea pods, whatever, we would simply say he's missing the point, right? He just doesn't get it because he doesn't have our context. And that is what Pastor was trying to teach us all regarding parables. There's a simple direct point being made. So rejoice in that truth with the faith of a child. And that parables are there to complement established theology that is plainly stated in the Bible. So again, our key points on Sunday were as follows. Man has a tendency to impose his own restrictions on parables in the Bible. Parables are predominantly meant to drive a single point or two home. They are not meant to be plucked apart and forced to shed light on things outside of their primary scope of revelation. And if a parable doesn't allow for certain specifics, then we can't impose them, even though we desire to draw certain conclusions. Parables aren't meant to be dissected ad nauseum. They are meant to be consumed whole, so a general rule or theme may be understood. And it's because of this, this proper way of looking at parables in general, that pastor was comfortable sharing with us different possible answers, right? He went over three different possible interpretations of John 15, first two in particular, and they all have reasonable arguments to them. But why wasn't pastor, who is obviously very worried about our souls, why wasn't he worried about sharing three different options, if you will? Three different possible meanings. Because they're parables. It's not like dealing with plainly stated theologies in the Bible that require dogmatic, strong conclusions to be taught. And that's why all of us listening should be relaxed when we hear three different interpretations of a parable. It's okay. You know, it's, and it's okay to wonder, what was the Lord getting at here? As long as, again, it matches up with plainly stated theology, and you don't draw some conclusion that goes against theology. 
So, uh, Pastor's point again on Sunday. We must learn to read parables correctly in keeping with the intended context and scope of the parable. Context is key. Remember that whole emphasis? Was it last year maybe? Talking about reading our own Bibles? Context is key. It's probably the most important factor in interpreting Scripture. And when we realize and utilize context, it fits right in with the big picture. It just adds color right where it's supposed to be. It's not out of place. But back to parables and how they must be consumed whole. Parables, as Pastor mentioned on Sunday, he made this analogy to Michelangelo's statue of David. And if you look at this sculpture, you see beauty. You see an amazing work of art. However, if we're trying to overanalyze the baby toe on the statue, we lose the big picture. We lose the point. We lose the magnificence of the whole. And that's what happens when we overanalyze parables. When we overanalyze parables, we lose sight of the forest for the trees. You forget where you are. As we read parables as a whole, we know that the writer intended to drive home a certain principle of doctrine and nothing more. And this was the way the pastor summarized it on Sunday regarding reading parables. If you learn to read the parables correctly, what you'll find is that they are like sculptures. Beautiful and effective at conveying our our great author's intentions, but they exist as full sculpture, not as bits and pieces hacked into doctrines that possibly don't even exist. Again, if you learn to read the parables correctly, what you'll find is they are like sculptures, beautiful and effective at conveying our great author's intentions but they exist as full sculpture, not as bits and pieces hacked into doctrines that possibly don't even exist. So to bring this full circle, when you read John chapter 15, read it with this perspective. And Pastor proposed these two questions just to, I think, get us to think out of the box a little bit. Is it possible that Jesus was simply sharing the nature of the relationship between a vine and branches when he made the strong statement that the vine dresser, God, doesn't care for fruitless branches. Is that possible? That it was that simple? And then he said, you might even challenge your own traditional thinking and ponder whether or not Jesus' intention was to even make distinctions between believers and unbelievers, strictly speaking. Just something to think about. And that's where Pastor stopped, short of drawing dogmatic conclusions. And that right there reveals his point all the more that there should be simplicity and freedom in interpreting parables. In other words, what's the main point of this parable? And will I agree with God on that, with the faith of a child? Or am I going to kick and scream and dig and have to find something really smart? 
really deep that no one else has discovered. Go back to John 15, where this all began. John 15, 1. Looks like we might end a little bit early tonight. This spirit's got me flying tonight. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And we saw on Sunday regarding casting them into the fire, Scripture depicts the burning by fire as an ultimate judgment, as that reserved for unbelievers, as in Matthew 7, 19, and Matthew 13, 40 through 42. As we saw earlier in Matthew 7, 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Regardless of the three possible interpretations that we covered, our main theology remains pristine, which again is this. True believers will produce fruit because God says so. And if they don't for a time, he'll rectify it because he says he will. And if they never come back, they were never his child in the first place because they are what the scripture calls apostates. And this whole topic came from clinging to God's promise in Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, believers, to those who are called according to his purpose. So even if you struggle with certain passages, just continue to love God and follow Him. It's that simple. All things work together for good for those that love God. There are a lot of people out there that bring God tremendous glory. And they don't necessarily understand a lot of things in the Scriptures. But they love God. And the Spirit works with them and through them because of that. Because they have faith and they're willingly humble. And there are people out there that bring tremendous glory to God that are uneducated, for example. But by faith and because they love God and follow Him, all things work together for good. And they're going to bring tremendous glory to God in heaven because of the proof of their faith. If we follow him with a sincere heart, he will lead us into all truth at the proper time. Just like Jesus said in the Gospels, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
follow me, and I will do the rest, in other words. Follow me, I will use you. Our concern should be love God and follow him. Jesus said he will complete the good work in us, even miraculous things, even though he's dealing with sinners. But he's made us new, and he's made us able to produce good in God's eyes. So on a side note, uh, I want to go back, go to uh, Luke chapter 5. We actually haven't been there. But I read a passage in Luke that just hit me really hard last week. And it reveals this point even more, that God will do the work in us if we just follow him. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will do A, B, C, and D in your life. Things that bring me glory. Look at Luke 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed such a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And that's what really hit me last week. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And even though we want to say that thing, and that's a true statement, Jesus might say in return, I've made you new. I've made you with divine power. I've changed you. So even though Peter was right and humble in saying this, overwhelmed by what the Lord just did, look how it goes on. In verse 9, amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is stated a little bit differently in Matthew chapter 4 on the board. In verses 19 and 20 in the NIV, Jesus said, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. But again, when we follow our Lord, we have nothing to worry about, including fully understanding parables that might bother us for a time. If we follow Him in humility, all things work together for good for those that love Him. 
And that's really what we have to fall back on. So again, just to help amplify this in your souls, this is why we have nothing to worry about in Romans 8.28 in the Amplified. And we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His plan and purpose. All things, all things, including the things you don't understand, including the things that are terribly unfair and might make you question God's love for you. Real trials, real suffering. God makes all things work together for good for those that love him, just like Job. Probably the worst suffering any man's endured other than Christ. And yet, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It takes that faith of a child that all things will work together for good for those that love him. So on Sunday, Pastor closed with what he called the ultimate perspective. Speaking of having a view towards ultimate sanctification in heaven one day. And he mentioned how this is a very useful tool in our arsenal that's always there for us to use, to fall back on. So, in other words, when we get disoriented spiritually or too myopic on a particular problem in life that we don't understand, we should turn to the ultimate perspective. Ultimately, where are we going to be? Heaven. And how are we going to live with God there? Perfectly. Perfectly. And this ultimate perspective can look at the future, life in heaven, and bring it to the now. Because right now we are that new creature that is going to live in heaven forever. We saw this on Sunday. Is God a puppeteer or... Your theology will either have to suggest that you can do good things because you, you are a new creature now, or you'll have to propose that God is an eternal puppeteer. Just consider heaven for clarity. Just consider heaven for clarity. Allow me to close with these thoughts that the Spirit gave me on Sunday when I considered heaven for clarity on this point. God is brilliant. He gave us true free will. And upon a man turning to Christ from his heart, he gives him a brand new, perfect nature which cannot sin. Now follow me here. When we ultimately get to heaven, we still worship God freely and perfectly in the new nature he's given us. When we ultimately get to heaven, we still worship God freely and perfectly in the new nature he's given us. And so all of us in heaven are going to sing and praise him from our new hearts. Because that's all we have then, right? And our new nature. We're all going to be singing and praising him, never forced or coerced, 
but freely in love forever and ever. All because God is brilliant and came up with a plan to honor our free will and give us a new perfect nature that will continue to worship Him freely out of your own heart's desire. And that's why you and I can do good things for Him right now in our new nature on this earth. He has supplied us in accordance with our free will decision to believe in Christ with a nature that freely and always desires His glory. You have that nature right now if you're a believer. When you don't desire His glory and you get selfish, obviously that's the old nature. But your new nature always desires His glory. Always desires to please Him. Out of your own free will, I want to do this for God. That's what we possess now. We're totally brand new and totally perfect. And that's what God wants us to reconcile right now while we're on earth. He wants us to reckon ourselves new and perfect and capable of producing good fruit that pleases Him fully. And that all comes from considering heaven for clarity. What a privilege and power we've been granted. But it takes faith. You have to believe it. What a privilege and power we've all been granted. And it's all from His grace. And it's all possible as long as we follow Him, submitting to His Spirit's filling. And He will work all things together for good for those that love Him. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your supernatural work in us, making us new and capable of actually pleasing You with our good works, freely living our lives for You from the new nature, which You've provided by grace through faith. Father, we ask that You help us share these things with people that need to know, and help us spread your good news to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.